Hey everyone and welcome to De Facto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Ju-E. And I'm Amelia. And today, instead of wondering what to do with our life now because we still haven't got that sorted in the past week, we're going to be talking about diagnostic tests. So, let's start with possibly the most common diagnostic test. And this is blood tests. I'm sure everybody in their life has had a blood test at some point. I know I only had one a couple of weeks ago. And although they're a bit uncomfortable in the moment, they're a really useful diagnostic tool for doctors to help us recognise different diseases and conditions. I remember when I was younger, and to be honest, still to a certain extent now, I went through a phase where I was obsessed, and I mean obsessed, with the TV programme Casualty. And whenever they got a new patient into the emergency department, they'd, the doctors kind of all hustled around the uh, patient and all looked very important. And they just kind of shouted out a load of acronyms. They'd be like, FBCs, LFTs, Us and Es. And it all sounded very cool and very, you know, official, but I never really knew what they meant. And turns out these were all referring to different blood tests that the doctors were ordering to help build a picture of what was wrong with patient. So blood tests are great because they're quick and they're safe and they're relatively painless. I say relatively, they do hurt in the moment, especially if the doctor can't get it first time, but let's move on. And they can be used to indicate a wide range of conditions and diseases. For example, they can be used to detect cancer, HIV, diabetes, anemia, chorionic heart disease. So they can also be used to evaluate how well organs and medications are working and how well blood is clotting. They can even be used to look for risk factors for potential heart disease in the future. But how do they actually work? Well, we're all aware of the first bit of a blood test, which involves using a needle to obtain a blood sample used from a vein in your arm or the back of your hand. And this sample is then sent to a lab where it's put in this machine called a centrifuge. And a centrifuge basically spins it around really, really quickly and separates out the blood into its Uh, constituent parts. So once it's been centrifuged, you can see three visible parts in the blood. You've got the top band, which which makes up about 55% of the blood's volume, and this is the plasma, or the liquid part of the blood. In the middle layer we have, which is is very thin and takes up about less than 1%, um, we have our white blood cells, which as we discussed last week in the vaccine episode, are important in helping our body to fight um, invasions and pathogens and the bottom layer which makes up the remaining roughly 45% is our red blood cells that we use to carry oxygen around our blood. So the sample once it's been centrifuged it then put in an analyzer machine for the results. The results are then communicated back to the GP or whoever ordered the test in the first place, um, indicating whether they are within the normal range or whether they're low or high. So there are so many different types of blood tests, but let's have a look at the some of the most common ones. So when I was talking about casualty, I mentioned FBCs, and this stands for full blood count, or it's sometimes also called CBCs, which is complete blood count. And this is possibly the most common type of blood test. And it basically takes an overall look at the main parts of your blood. 
So it measures your red blood cells and haemoglobin levels, which are responsible for carrying oxygen around the body, your white blood cells, your platelets, which are important in helping the blood clot, your hematocrits, which is a measurement of the size and number of red blood cells in your blood, and your mean corpuscular volume, which again, it kind of indicates how many red blood cells there are. But what do these results actually mean? So starting with the red blood cells, the haemoglobin and the hematocrit, for all of these, a decreased level indicates conditions such as anemia, which is kind of where you have low iron, and an increased level could be due to fluid loss, such as from diarrhoea, dehydration or burns. When we look at uh, white blood cells, these are split into different types and they're kind of associated with different um, abnormalities. So an increase um, in white blood cells may be indicative of infections, inflammations or cancers such as leukaemia. On the other hand, a decrease in white blood cells may be caused by some medications, some viral severe infections, bone marrow failure, and can even be caused by conditions such as anorexia nervosa. So the mean corpuscular volume, um, uh, for this, an increased level um, indicates um, B, vitamin B12 and folate deficiencies, along with things like liver disease and underactive thyroid in pregnancy. And at decreased levels, again, can indicate iron deficiency and inflammatory disorders. And finally, the platelets, an increase we expect to see after bleeding or inflammation, and a decrease we, is often associated with immune disorders and vitamin uh, deficiencies, and can occur in response to some drugs such as chemotherapy. So that was quite a long list, and as you can see from the above, each blood test result can indicate several different disorders or abnormalities going on. So blood tests can't be used as a standalone diagnostic um, measure, but they are extremely helpful in helping the doctor get a, a better picture of what's going on. Now, another example that I came across when I was researching for this was blood enzyme tests. And in particular, I noticed, um, I was intrigued by uh, the way that these can be used to predict heart attacks. And the thing that initially caught my attention was that part of this detects the enzyme troponin, which we learn about in the biology high-level syllabus. So troponin, um, when looking at muscle contractions, is an enzyme that binds to the thin actin filaments in our muscles, causing another protein called tropomyosin to move, revealing myosin heads binding sites on the actin filament, which in turn allows for muscle contraction. So long story short, troponin is involved with muscle contractions. Now, when we have a heart attack, um, cells and tissue in the heart begin to die. And when these cells die, um, they actually release troponin into the blood. In a healthy person, troponin is present, but it is in very low levels, and so it would be undetectable in a blood test. However, um, when we get this excess of troponin leaked into the blood when we have a heart attack, this can be detected and therefore in, um, is a clear indicator for heart attack. And here, using this test and the speed of a blood test allows for rapid treatment. However, it's important to note again that 
um, hydroponin levels are not exclusively caused by heart attacks. For example, they can be caused by high intensity exercise, which kind of makes sense if you think about it because more muscle contraction, we need more troponin, so the levels go up. So that's just kind of an overview of some of the some of the most common blood tests and also looking at how useful blood tests are being a quick, safe, non-invasive um, means of testing. So yeah, that's blood tests. And now we're going to talk about the possibly the second most common tests. Yeah, so now we're going to like do a complete 180 and talk about urine tests, which I'm sure everyone is very interested in. I've actually never personally took a urine test. But as Amelia said, it's much more common to take a blood test, I think, because most of the time, you know, I've taken a blood test and there's still like a mole on my elbow. I'm not sure if that's like a common thing, but for some reason, I have one on my elbow from taking a blood test. Okay, so urine test. First, I thought we would kind of talk about what the kidney usually does. So it makes sense to see like how the abnormalities play out. So I wanted to talk about three main things with three main things, which is the role of protein, glucose, and water. So usually what happens is that proteins are too big, so they don't, you know, amino acids are too big to get filtered out by the kidney, and therefore they never enter the kidney. Glucose, on the other hand, does enter the kidney, but get completely reabsorbed. And same goes for water, where the amount of water that's reabsorbed kind of is determined by, you know, how much you drink and the concentration of your blood, as in, like, if your blood is too thick, then you might not excrete as much water because you need to save some. The excretory system is actually very helpful in determining what goes on in your body because, for example, if too much gets flushed out or something that isn't supposed to be there leaves, like for example, amino acids, you can use this to determine that something might be wrong with your kidney or with your liver because these two things are really important in excretion. So there are usually three phases of urine tests called visual, the visual stage, which checks for colour and clarity, the chemical stage, and the microscopic stage. And usually you don't order the third stage unless there's something wrong with the first two stages, although this does depend on the clinic and possibly the country. So usually urine tests are taken in the morning, and this is just because after you sleep and wake up, the concentration is higher because you kind of cannot drink water when you're asleep, so it's more likely to detect abnormalities. So moving on to the visual part. So the visual part is probably the most simple part. Sometimes, you know, your urine might be a different color and that's something that we can also look at ourselves, although we would not be able to diagnose it ourselves. So for example, you know, it could be red because you've eaten a lot of beetroot, but it could also be red because there are a lot of red blood cells in your urine, which is definitely a cause for concern. Then clarity as well. So clarity is also a two-edged sword, just like visually, because Sometimes it's cloudy, like sometimes your urine might be cloudy, but that might just because there are cells from your skin, for example, or mucus. But sometimes it is blood cells, which is again a cause for concern. So this is kind of the same thing as in blood tests, they might be looking at blood cells, and blood cells actually turn out to be really important in all these diagnostic tests. So the second part of the exam is the chemical exam, which is usually done with a urine test strip. So you can compare the colour for pH, for example. And this, and also for high levels of protein or glucose, as well as bilirubin, I can't say this, bilirubin, <laughs> and um, yeah, and nitrates. So basically, the high levels of protein and glucose are usually indicative of diabetes. And proteins could also be a sign of an abnormal kidney because, as I mentioned just now, usually you know proteins don't enter the kidney. 
Bilirubin is an interesting one because it's actually produced from the hemoglobin of red blood cells that are broken down and removed from circulation. And just briefly, this is because you can imagine that red blood cells actually have a very short life cycle. And it's because, you know, if you have really old blood cells, they just don't work as well. It's just like, you know, if you have a bike for like seven years, obviously the bike is going to go rusty and not work as well, right? So you want to replace this regularly. So the, the red blood cells that are actually broken down are broken down by the liver and the hemoglobin that's part of red blood cells, the iron part of red blood cells, becomes a component of bile in the liver. But in some liver diseases, such as hepatitis, excess of bilirubin builds up, as in, you know, this iron converted thing, and it's eliminated in urine. So if it's present in your urine, you can take this as being indicative of a liver disease. Blood is a similar thing. So usually you test for blood by testing for hemoglobin because it's a molecule in red blood cells. So it's not necessarily a cause for alarm if you have hemoglobin in your um, urine. But people, but the doctors might order repeat testing to see the source of this hemoglobin. Um, another one that you test for is called leukocyte esterase, and it's an enzyme present in most white blood cells, which is considered in conjunction with a microscopic test if the level is really high. And then finally, there's mm, this test for nitrites, which is based on the understanding that bacteria usually convert nitrates into nitrite in the nitrogen cycle, which I am terrible at. I'm very glad we're not doing the IV anymore because I would fail the nitrogen cycle. <laughs> it was always the most difficult thing in GCSE, but anyway. So based on the understanding that bacteria convert nitrates into nitrite, if you have nitrites present in your urine, that might be indicative of a urinary tract infection, as in your, there's bacteria in your urinary tract. So something I thought was really interesting was how this urine test strip actually works. So in most cases, you know, like the test for pH, you just dip the strip in and then you take it out and then you compare it to maybe a label on the bottle that will tell you, oh, this is how much, you know, this is the pH and this is the level of proteins. But something that's really interesting is this is actually also how they test for pregnancy. Because there's this hormone, HCG, that's only produced by a placenta and the developing embryo during pregnancy. So you can see that how this can be used as a test for pregnancy. So how this works is a bit complicated. Basically, imagine three sites on a strip, okay? So the first site, there are three antibodies that are specific to HCG, as in they will bind to HCG if they encounter it, kind of like a lock and a key. And then they, will, they are joined to an enzyme, which is not yet activated, but it will change the color of a dye. So another set of antibodies in the middle are immobilized and fixed basically to the dye, which currently is one color. Let's say color, let, let's just call it a color. Let's just say like purple, for example. So the dye is currently purple. And if um, HCG is present, it will interact with both sets in the sense that it will first bind to the one that's joined to the enzyme and then it will bind to the one that's fixed to the dye. So that means that the enzyme is brought to the dye and the dye will change color, let's say from purple to pink. So a third set, you know, because I mentioned there were three sets, a third set will actually accept the remainder because not everyone can bind to an enzyme and an antibody just because there isn't enough of them. So not everything will change the color of the dye. A third set actually accepts the remainder of, an, of the HCG and functions as a control. So, you know, there's a dye there too, but the color won't change. So after that very long monologue about like chemical um, examination, the final part is microscopic examination. So it's actually a similar thing to red blood cells in the sense that 
uh, red blood cells. It's a similar thing to blood tests in the sense that it's also centrifuge, so that the substances are at the bottom. So there are a few things that you can see here. If they're white blood cells, you might infer that you know there might be a kidney tract infection, and that's why the white blood cells are at the site of the kidney to fight the infection. If they're red blood cells, it might be indicative of a kidney stone or tumor. And if there are bacteria, yeast, and parasites, these are all cause for infection. I wanted to mention crystals as well, like for example, calcium carbonate, cysteine, tyrosine, and leucine, which are amino acids. These crystals aren't usually present in your urine, and they may actually group together to form kidney stones, which, as I mentioned just now, and they actually get lodged in your kidney or your ureters, which is basically what the tubes that allow you to pass urine, and these cause extreme pain. Yeah, I think that's so cool to kind of, especially going back to the pregnancy test, to look a bit more at the science behind something that we all take for granted and that is just such a, seems such a simple piece of technology and to actually look a bit at how that works. So now I'm going to talk about the COVID-19 tests, which again, I'm sure everybody by now has had at least one, te- uh, at least one test. I know I personally have had three in the last week alone so um yeah so I think we're all familiar with kind of the general tests but let's have a look at um the different types of tests so kind of the first test to form was the PCR test and this is a kind of direct test because it looks direct it detects directly um the RNA of the virus so the way we start or looking at PCR first So the way this works is we add to a tube um, our RNA sample, nucleotides, primers, TAC polymerase, which is the enzyme which can copy the DNA, a buffer. And in addition to regular uh, PCR, we add this enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which is what turns our RNA viral sample into DNA because that's what's actually replicated in PCR is the DNA and not the RNA. So once we've got this sample, we put it in a thermocycler, which is basically like a big metal block that can go up and down in temperature. And when it's in the thermocycler, um, the sample undergoes three stages. The first is called denaturation, which is where the DNA sample is heated to around 95 degrees C for about a minute. And this is to separate the two strands so that the strand the strand of dna that you want to copy is actually open and able to be copied in the second stage which is called annealing the dna primers that we added into the first sample attach to the three prime end of the target sequence so in this case the viral dna and this occurs at about 55 degrees c and then we get elongation, which is the actual replication bit, where TAC polymerase binds to these primers and adds nucleotides to copy the sequence. And this occurs at around 72 degrees C for about two minutes. And this is repeated for at least 30 cycles and creates over a billion copies of the DNA or the viral DNA that we want. So usually we then go through a process called gel electrophoresis. This always confuses me a bit and I've never really got my head properly around it, but basically it separates out different fragments, different sizes of fragments of DNA by size. So the um, biggest fragments will travel the slowest and the 
smallest tra- uh, fragments will travel the fastest. And as a result, we get kind of a pretty picture of bands of different DNA. And from this, we can work out what the sequence of DNA is. But this takes time and we have to test millions of people every single day and we already know what uh, sequence we're looking for. So, in the terms of the COVID test, we use this thing called real-time or RT-PCR. And for RT-PCR, a probe is added to the initial mixture. And this probe is a sequence of DNA designed to target a specific part of the viral sequence, which is also attached to a fluorescent tag. So if the viral sequence is present, then this probe will bind to that viral uh, viral sequence and release the fluorescent tag. Now the fluorescent tag can't actually grow if it's, um, grow, can't actually glow when it's attached to the sequence, but it, it glows when it's released. And therefore, if the viral DNA is um, present, then we gradually see the solution getting more and more kind of glowy um, or more and more fluorescent as time progresses. And this is why it's real time, because we can see as the reaction is happening, we can see the um, we can measure the fluorescence. So this is a really nice, quick way of um, determining whether or not somebody has COVID. Um However, the downside to this test is that it takes time and usually we only get results kind of, maybe you'd get your results four or five days after you actually test. So, but in terms of the pandemic, we want kind of quick results to be able to stop the spread of the virus. And this is where the next type of test comes in. And this is lateral flow testing. And this is actually the type of test that I've had most recently for going back to school. And this is really neat. Um, So this involves taking a swab from your nose and the back of your throat, which isn't very pleasant, but again, same as PCR. Um, And then this swab is mixed with a buffer solution, which breaks up the viral fragments. The solution is then dropped onto this thing called an LFD, which is a lateral flow device. And this is very similar to what GE described with the pregnancy test. It has a sample pad, a conjugate pad, a test line, a control line, and then an absorbent pad at the end. So the solution is drawn down the absorbent strip. And um, firstly, it reaches the conjugate release pad, which is where specific labelled antibodies, which um, bind to the COVID-19 antigens are released. At the test site, antibodies which have binded to an antigen, so if antigens are present, they'll bind to these antibodies that were initially released, and then they will um, bind to another set of antibodies on this control line, creating a sort of sandwich. Um, And then on the third line, which is the control line, the remaining antibodies um, will bind and this is just to show that the test was working. So very similar to the pregnancy test that uh, GE described, two lines indicates a positive result that you have COVID-19, and um, one line indicates negative, no lines, test hasn't worked. 
The advantage of this is that it's so quick. You can get results in 10 to 30 minutes. And this is so important, I think, for actually getting back to normality and tracking the spread of the virus. Um, and so, yeah, the lateral flow devices are a really neat and quick way to test for antigens in our, um, to test for antigens. Uh, the final type of test is a different type of test, and this is called an indirect test or the antibody test, because whilst it doesn't detect the virus itself, it detects antibodies which are, which are produced as a result of being exposed to the virus. So antibodies are also called immunoglobulins, and we have five types of these, but in particular, we're interested in two types, for the COVID test, and these are your IgM and IgG immunoglobulins. I can't say that word, so I'm gonna stop saying it now. So firstly, we've got the IgMs, which are most important in the initial defense, and they're prominent when um, our body is initially responding to the coronavirus. And then in the later stages of the virus, the IgG takes over, and this can be detected in the blood for several weeks. So the way that the antibody test works is a blood sample is taken and it's put into an antibody testing device um, containing the SARS-CoV-2 antigens. So if antibodies are present, then they bind to these antigens and the antigens are detected. So those are the main three types of tests that are used. You know, I think the really cool thing is I'm pretty sure I've never had the test that you mentioned, the lateral flow testing test, because the lateral flow testing test, wow, okay. But anyway, I don't think I've ever done that because granted, I'm not back at school. But because I remember PCR is also a swab, right? Because PCR is also, yeah. So like, I know that I took a PCR test because it took like three days. But I think it's really interesting to consider how both of them are kind of swaps. But one is so much quicker because of how you process it afterwards. I feel like that's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's quite interesting to look at some of the, not consequences, but the differences between why we use different tests. So I was wondering kind of how do we know that a test is a good test? Like what do we actually look for to, to determine whether or not a test has been successful? So there are two things that we use in di diagnostics. The first is sensitivity and the second is specificity. Now sensitivity is the ability of a test to correctly identify people who are infected. And so a test with high sensitivity um, indicates that we have high rates of true positives and low rates of false negatives. This is a bit of a mind boggler. It takes a while to get your head around. But the specificity is the opposite. So this is the ability of the test to correctly identify people who aren't infected. So sensitivity, people who are infected, specificity, people who aren't. And so a test with a high specificity indicates that we have a low rate of false positives and a high rate of true negatives. So in an ideal test, we are aiming for high sensitivity and high specificity. The higher they are, the better the test. So in terms of the COVID test, the most reliable to date, I believe is still the PCR test. However, this takes longer and it's more expensive. But the anti uh, the antigen test, the lateral flow test, is still a very um, 
a very good test and so um it's really effective at kind of identifying quickly cases in the community that wouldn't necessarily be detected because after all something like one in three people with covid will be asymptomatic so uh, quick tests like the lateral flow device test are so important, I think, in getting our community back up and running again because it allows us to keep a much better picture and idea of how um, of how the disease is actually spreading. I think I just got a headache from this true positive and true negative misses. But basically what I gathered was you want the test to be correct, as in if you actually have it, you want the test to say you have it. If you actually don't have it, you want the test to say you don't have it. So basically, that's what the test is looking for. But Amelia really went into detail there, and I feel like if you can get your head around that, I really respect you, because right now I cannot. (laughs) But anyway, the last thing that we thought we would talk about is cancer, which is kind of depressing, but it's also really interesting to see how that works. So I wanted to talk about um, two things here, and the first is genetic markers. So there are actually two kinds of genes that are taught to cause cancer. Now, you can't see me, but I'm drawing air quotes around this because genes don't directly cause cancer. It's not like, you know, you have this gene and then you will definitely have cancer. It's not like that. But there are two kinds of genes that are thought to, insert air quotes, cause cancer. So one is called oncogenes, which usually are unexpressed genes. And in cancers, they are expressed at higher levels. So when the oncogenes are not expressed, they usually, you know, the cell is able to control itself. So cancer, just to be brief, cancer is when cells divide uncontrollably. And therefore, you know, oncogenes, when they are expressed, cause the cell to lose control of cell division regulation. So they divide uncontrollably, which is cancer. So tumor suppressor genes do what their names say and basically are the opposite of oncogenes. In the sense that tumor suppressor genes are usually expressed, as in, you know, they're usually shown by the cell and they don't work so usually they are slowing down cell division they repair dna they tell cells when to die which is actually really helpful because imagine if you have a really old cell that's really sick for example and it's just sitting there spewing out stuff that it's not supposed to be spewing and you would want to get rid of this cell right so you need to have a system where the body tells the cell okay it's time for you to destroy yourself now and this is actually regulated by tumor suppressor genes so you can imagine that if the tumor suppressor genes don't work you have a lot of bad things happening in your body so very well-known tumor suppressor genes are actually called BRCA1 and BRCA2 for breast and ovarian cancer so they are the most common genes for these cancers but actually only three percent of people with breast and ovarian cancers have mutations in BRCA1 or BRCA2 but it's already the most common, which is kind of crazy to think about and just goes to show how there's not like one gene for cancer. So if you inherit them, you have a greater risk of cancer. And this is why we always take familial history, because your genes actually do determine quite a lot. But even if you have a harmful variant of BRCA1 or BRCA2, you have two variants because you have two parents, right? And most babies with two harmful variants, let's say you get a bad one from your mom and a bad one from your dad, actually most babies don't survive if that happens. So... At most, what you would have is one good copy and one bad copy, and actually, they would um your body actually knows to get rid of the bad copy, as in it inactivates the bad copy, kind of like the bad copy is permanently on an off switch. However, this off switch doesn't always work. So the bad thing is, throughout your lifetime, you might actually lose the good copy of your BRCA one or BRCA two gene, and that will cause a somatic alteration, which basically means that the bo- that your body cell will change and lead to cancer. 
So one way of detecting whether you have a mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene is actually through DNA microarrays. And what happens is you take the mRNA and a control sample of body cells without mutation. So basically, you take the genetic material of two cells from your body, one with the mutation and one, one that you suspect has the mutation and one without the mutation. So then you color code it with fluorescent tags, as in you put the healthy one in green and the abnormal one in red. So this is like a traffic light of detection, which is pretty cool. But then you turn the mRNA into cDNA, and the reason for this is that cDNA is more stable, mostly because for two reasons. RNA is quite unstable in the sense that you know how the bases of RNA are A, U, C, G. But actually, U is really unstable, and it readily converts into another one of bases, which obviously isn't really good because you know it's a code, and if the code suddenly changes, that's not really a good thing. So that's why it's turned into DNA because DNA is more stable. Another reason is because the cell just likes breaking RNA down because the cell isn't used to having RNA just floating around doing nothing. So it's turned into cDNA, which is more stable. And then you put this into a chip, and then you allow it to bind to synthetic DNA in the chip. So if it has a mutation, it will bind to the complementary mutation DNA in the chip. So then you can look at the tags, and then you can actually determine quite a lot about these things. Like for example, if it's a red region, you can tell that, wow, this cancer is really strongly expressing this region of DNA. If it's green, then okay, your healthy cells are really strongly expressing this, but that also means that there's no red part, which means that the cancer isn't expressing this. And then there's a the yellow part, which means that it's both strongly, neither strongly expressed or repressed in cancer cells because both red and green regions have this. So yellow can be kind of considered a normal region, and it's red and green that you should really pay more attention to. So that kind of concludes our diagnostic test summary from today. We kind of picked very random things, but I thought, I thought that we kind of also picked really um. I don't know, I thought it was really interesting to kind of look at how we're going with COVID tests, and also how we are doing usual tests like blood tests. I mean, I've never taken a urine test, but I always thought it was really interesting to see how, you know, you can just take a prick from you and you can actually determine so much about your body. And I think that all the tests here have really shown that. Yeah, definitely. I think it was really interesting for me to kind of go into a bit more detail about how these different tests kind of work and a bit of the science behind them. But also looking at some very topical things like the new cancer tests and the COVID tests. Um, so yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening and thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>